I want to start just thinking about the, the Apollo 13 mission, which is a super famous mission, but it was famous for everything that didn't go well, right? It's famous for everything that went wrong. When it had a like oxygen tank explosion, it kind of really messed up their, their, their ship uh, and, and their plan to go to the moon. Uh, and, and you had these astronauts who had prepared, who were planning on being, what, the, 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 the fifth and sixth people to ever walk on the moon. And because everything went wrong on their way into space, they, they had to sit there with these expectations and all of them being dashed. I, I actually feel like the movie, the 1995 movie with uh, Tom Hanks, you have this moment where Tom Hanks is looking out at the window at the moon and he really has to come to terms with the fact that he's not going to go there. That all of his preparation, all that he has dreamed about, all that he expected to happen had suddenly changed in that moment. And the astronauts and ground control, they kind of figure out a way to like power down most of the ship and eventually bring it back with like close to 0% chance that they were gonna survive at all. And, and they did, it's an incredible story, an incredible movie. But that moment in space was this moment like the, the philosopher and famous boxer Mike Tyson so eloquently put that everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And, and I think these stories, which feel a little bit disconnected, have a little bit of this theme to them. That what happens when things turn out way differently than expected? Like these are God's chosen in Jesus and John. They're, they're the kingdom bearers. They are favored and blessed and the spirit of God is upon them. But things are turning out differently than most would expect. When our expectations of how God will act and provide turn out differently, when we are hit in the mouth with suffering and tragedy and struggle, in the midst of being maybe even obedient and faithful, and yet the circumstances go very differently and they're rejected or ignored or misunderstood, what happens in those moments? Because we encounter Jesus in his hometown in that opening story. Jesus finished the parables. He went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogues. And for a kind of a rabbi teacher like Jesus, this was pretty common. Uh, and in his hometown, he would even be assigned um, readings uh, that every citizen actually was assigned. So um, they have these readings, these Torah readings, and these uh, parashah, these uh, prophet readings, uh, or the haftarah, the prophet readings as well, that would happen in the synagogues. And you would come in as a local, you'd be assigned your day, you'd come in and read. And Jesus would have had those things. They would hand them a scroll of whatever the reading was that day, and they would read them. And so Jesus was participating in the life of his hometown um, synagogue in this moment. And they were astonished, and they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Now, according to Matthew in the story, it just seems like the general teaching of Jesus is what stirs up the crowd here. And the difficulty is that the other gospel writers, particularly Luke, give us a lot more details about the story than Matthew do. But we'll, we'll get there in a second. It says, it's not this the carpenter's son. It's not his mother called Mary. It's not his brother James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Not sisters with us. Where did this man get these things? And they took offense at him. This is what they're saying, look, we've known Jesus our whole lives. His whole family, he's one of us. But something's different about he's operating with wisdom and power. Which is super fascinating because sometimes in my mind I picture Jesus like even at like, oh, he's at a party at 21 and they run out of some water and he, he, he brings a miracle to the party. 
But it, but it seems like from all of his hometown that the 30 years or so that Jesus lived before he went into sort of his public ministry was an incredibly ordinary enough that they're really surprised by how Jesus is operating. As if he, he lived a, a fairly ordinary life without performing all the miracles. I mean, sin-free, which that might have been annoying enough, but at least for your brothers and sisters. But yeah, enough that when he finally starts performing miracles and starts preaching, they're like, who is this guy? Like, this isn't the Jesus that we remember. He wasn't doing all this back in his day. And there's even some digs, uh, I think, in their statements uh, to name his mom and not name his dad, who likely by this time has probably passed away. Uh, That's what most scholars think. It's almost like they're saying, hey, isn't Jesus that bastard kid? Like, who is this guy? And the question is, so what's the offense? What are they so offended about? Because, I mean, Jesus shows up with the ability to heal and and do things like that, perform miracles. That that doesn't seem like a reason to be offended by him or to take offense at him. But something about his wisdom or maybe some of those what's he's saying are the things that seem to be stirring the crowd. And I think this is where Luke really actually helps us. Hear me. I don't love harmonizing the, harmonizing the Gospels. Uh, I think Matthew tells the stories like they are for certain reasons. Luke tells his stories for certain reasons. Mark does. And I think that's really important. I'm not interested most of the time in harmonizing the Gospels. But sometimes there's like just details that really help flesh out some of these stories. And Matthew, for whatever reason, just includes so little details in the story that it's hard to like be like, I don't know what they're offended about. I don't know what's going on here. And, and Luke gives us a parallel story that I think really helps us, at least today, unpack the story a little bit more. And, and so we get similar language in that story. They're questioning Jesus. Um, he, he did a reading uh, that day of Isaiah. He, he pronounces the year of Jubilee and where the captives will be set free and people will be healed. And then he, he tells them all, that day is like today. Like it's, that, that day is happening right now. And then they start questioning, like, who, who is this guy? Like, don't we know him? Don't we know his parents? Aren't, aren't, isn't he from our hometown? All the things that happen in this story as well. But it's also in the midst of this, it says everyone spoke well of him. So at least in the reading, and even in that pronunciation, it wasn't like that was the problem yet. And then Jesus says this in that story. Uh, Luke 4, 25 to 28, says, But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. Uh, And the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came all over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman uh, who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha. None of them uh, was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all of the synagogue was filled with wrath. So that's what at least does something to people. So why? Like, who is the widow of Sidon? What do we know about that story? Yeah, this, this Gentile woman. In the midst of a famine affecting all of Israel and all the area because Elijah helped call God to the task, we, we encounter this widow who is starving, who needs help. And in that story, when the rest of Israel is also struggling with famine, God brings through Elijah like provision to this woman. Or Naaman, what do we know about that story? Naaman the Syrian, which the name itself should already trigger us quite a bit. He's, he's what? Is he an Israelite? 
Oh, he's, he's Syrian, which are like the enemies of Israel. And leprosy was probably more common in much of Israel, but we hear the story, we get recorded the story of this healing of this Syrian soldier. And you have, once again, these outsiders, which this is Luke. Like Matthew already does this a lot, but Luke does this a lot too. As if Jesus is coming in this day, this day of Jubilee is here, God is ushering in this new thing. And it may not be just for your Israelites. And this day of Jubilee may be for the Gentiles that I've come to pronounce. That's sort of the context here. And that's what sends them over the edge. The prophet Jesus is like, here's what I've come to do. And he's connecting it to Israel's original mission. When, when Abraham is called, this is the mission. I'm going to bless you so you can be blessing all nations. In Israel, you're like the firstborn, which would make all the other nations then brothers and sisters that are in the family if, if, if Israel's the firstborn of all the nations. So their job is to take care of all the siblings. That's Israel's call and task over and over and over again. And Jesus is sitting here, I think, telling this crowd, I've come to proclaim the blessing. But it's to the nations. And the people in the story seem to think, we want the blessing ourselves, not them. Which could sound pretty selfish. But for many of us, we, we actually probably are more like this than we think. And when God moves to actually bless other people around us as opposed to just us, we're, we're probably more selfish in our response. Maybe we feign congratulations when somebody else gets a promotion or somebody else gets blessed with children or something along those lines. Or we downplay achievement thinking that, yeah, what they accomplished was really not all that great. Or we criticize or we're passive aggressive. All, all the ways I think we're not much different than these townsfolks. And then Matthew just pulls our eyes to a whole other story pretty quickly. He's like, at that time, and remember, there's no headers, there's no chapter breaks, there's none of that stuff. This is all continuous story in Matthew. At the time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous, uh, these miraculous powers are at work in him. So at the time where we hear stories of Jesus being rejected, we're pulled to John the Baptist. And as Jesus has mentioned, a prophet has consequences for their role. And something about the prophet Jesus has some parallels to John. Something about what he's saying, what he's doing, the miraculous powers he's doing, whatever it is that Herod seems to think, all right, something about him is either John the Baptist resurrected or is a whole lot like John the Baptist. And then Matthew has to tell us, oh yeah, let me tell you how John died. Um, it's almost like he's like getting to that point in the story. He's like, oh yeah, I need, to, I need to make sure my audience knows. Here's how John the Baptist died. And then we get the whole story of Herodias and her daughter. I won't read through all that text again, just to save some time. Now, the story is jacked up, right? It is jacked up, reality show, incest weirdness. This is just what the story is. And, and it's meant to be a little bit of a shock to read through it, to be like, what is wrong with these people? It's par for the course for the Herod family, but this is what is going on. And Herod always had this weird relationship with John, perhaps because John would speak against the same people that Herod didn't really like as well. Because John would call Romans to task, he'd call the priesthood to task. It seemed like it was commonplace for him to kind of challenge 
particularly powers that be. And Herod had his own funky relationships with the other powers that be as well, because powerful people don't like other powerful people very often. And Herod's stepdaughter does this dance, and it pleases Herod, which even the language has some possible sexual overtones to that moment. It's like this power chess game happening. And the mom, who doesn't seem to be quite a fan of John the Baptist, um, wants to kill him. And she utilizes her own power over her own daughter to do this. Like, I'm telling y'all, like, it's, it's messed. It's messed up. It's power, it's sex, it's intrigue, it's abuse. It's all of this in this weird package. And it all gets John the Baptist killed. The one who Jesus just said, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater. And he dies because of some weird family sexual power game. And we're supposed to read that and be like, man, like this was the harbinger for the savior of the world. And this is how he dies? And his disciples came, took the body, and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. And when Jesus heard it, he withdrew from there to a boat to a desolate place by himself. And the finale of John's life, he's given a proper burial, which is great. And it causes Jesus some sense of, it seems like, deep sadness. And he wants to be alone and perhaps grieve. And so that's our text. But I, I'm not a traditional three-point guy, but I, I think there's three things to, to kind of pull out of, of this text today. And they're all about sort of the kingdom, which is what Jesus came to proclaim, right? Like, he's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And that's what all three gospel writers identify as the good news. It's about this kingdom. It's about God coming to his world and setting up his authority and, and bringing in uh, his rule and reign in, in, in a new way that is distinct from the rule and reign of the world. And John the Baptist is the harbinger for that. He's the one who's setting it up for Jesus to come and do that. And as this kingdom comes, what, what, what do we expect? What does it look like? Is there suffering in the kingdom? Is, is the kingdom compatible with some of the stuff going on in Israel at the time? And so I think that we get three things. The kingdom that challenges the worldviews, the kingdom that challenges prosperity, and then the kingdom that challenges sort of detachment from the world. So Jesus and John both came to proclaim this message to prepare the way about who God is, what he's like, what the world's going to be like. Um, and, and we even see that they're very different in some of the ways they approach things. Jesus even points it out. He says, John came neither eating nor drinking, and you guys said he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. You say, look at him. He's a drunken, drunk, uh, glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. They both have different ways that they even talk about the kingdom, but, but that is what they came to proclaim. And I'm no surprise then that both of them tend to offend very different parties in the process of doing those sort of things. Different worldviews, different understandings of what reality is really about. John comes speaking against leadership. He calls out sin and corruption all the time. He speaks constantly about repentance. Enough that he, he even speaks to the Tetrarch of Israel, who's, who's a powerful person, and he speaks to them about his sin and the sins that him and his wife are in now. This man of abuse of power, of corruption, of paranoia, someone who has absorbed so much of Greek culture, um, those Herodians have become followers of him and are often thought of as very Hellenistic, very Greek in sort of their backgrounds. Um, he has a looser understanding around sexuality, around violence, around redefining all these things that are very distinct from conservative uh, Israel, uh, conservative particularly in the North. Because Jesus comes to that crowd. 
And he has his own challenges in the ministry up in Galilee, in, in Nazareth, and, and it is a predominantly Pharisaic, a predominantly pretty conservative world. Um, this is a world that um, sought so much to avoid the corruption of the South. They're like, we, we, we want to set up shop here so that we could be the good, religious, obedient people. And they set up rules just to make sure they didn't break the actual rules on top of things. And they did this out of a desire for something good. They didn't want to end up in the exile again. They kind of learned their lessons from Babylon. They're like, hey, we, we need to know what God expects of us. We've got to do it just right. We've got to make sure everything is out of obedience. We want to make sure Yahweh blesses us again. We want to make Israel great again. But in so doing, they often rejected the foreigner. They marginalized those who broke the rules or were unclean for different ways. And Jesus comes, friend of tax collectors and sinners. He gives this great sermon where he blesses all the people that nobody expected him to. He points out Israel's mission once again to bless the nations and that God had given the firstborn nation to, to do this job. And to liberals, John's message of chastity, of upholding what God has said about marriage, of calling to obedience and repentance would have been a challenge. John would have ticked off a, a pretty liberal crowd. And then in conservatives, Jesus would come in with messages of inclusion, radical grace towards sinners, a framing obedience around a love of neighbor. And he's going to challenge a little bit of that conservative crowd up in the north. And it causes both of them to get rejected. And it's still true today. The gospel is not neutral. Like this is literally, there's an organization called the Anne Campaign. This is literally what they do. Let's talk about how the framework of the kingdom just doesn't fit parties. And they want people to be politically engaged and all that kind of stuff, but they're like, but the kingdom just doesn't work in the conservative liberal spectrum. And how much it challenges us from all different ways of the worldviews that, and ideologies that we all kind of swim in. That too many of us sometimes either want a crossless Christ or a Christless cross. And what I mean by that is that we, sometimes we want the, the Christ without the cross. We want the Christ going around and having meals with everybody and speaking about love and speaking about justice and all these sort of things. But we don't want to talk about sin and atonement and the need for salvation and what the cross really accomplished. Or some of us want the cross without the Christ. We want to put all of our eggs in the basket of, of repentance and sort of the cognitive belief of what happened on Good Friday. And we miss out of three years of Jesus showcasing how to be a true human as God has designed and to give him the most of glory, including selflessness and mercy and love and generosity and all those pieces. It's a struggle. As N.T. Wright speaks about Jesus' public ministry, he says this, he says, the reason there are so many questions in both directions about him was that, as historians have concluded for many years, Jesus fit no ready-made categories. He collapsed categories and broke boundaries. And if we're going to be gospel people, if we're going to be really formed and shaped in our, in our ideology that is Christ-like, there's going to be categories on both sides that just are a challenge. And maybe the way we speak or the way we live is going to push. And then there's the kingdom versus sort of prosperity. Because I hope we have no doubt that these two were considered blessed 
or favored. We certainly know the presence of the Spirit was with them. They're doing the very things that God had called them to do. And the outcome? Suffering, rejection, misunderstanding, death, right? Now, there's certainly moments where being favored and blessed can look like circumstances working out. It can look like worldly pictures of happiness and all those things. But if that's our only definition of what blessing and favored means, I don't think we have a Christian definition. And the theology of suffering is perhaps more informed by the world or prosperity gospels than scripture itself. Because even before we encounter the cross, I mean, we still got, we're only halfway there. We haven't gotten to the cross yet. We're starting to see suffering play a key role in the story of God. Elizabeth Elliot will go on to say, what is the great symbol of Christian faith? She says, symbol of suffering. That is what the Christian faith is about. It deals head on with the question of suffering when no other religions in the world does that. Every other religion in some way evades the question and Christianity has at its very heart this question of suffering. And I think she's true in a lot of the levels. Like take Buddhism. To say you're suffering, it's not real. It's an illusion, it's a, it's a mirage. Karma would say that your suffering is just part of a fair system. And that you're suffering because of a previous life and mistakes made there. Or fatalism would say your suffering is no big deal. It's just your microcosm, your respect. Just let it, be, let it happen to you. Secularism would say your suffering is meaningless. It's an interruption to your next joy or happiness. But to be clear, both these sufferings are about these two characters, Jesus and John the Baptist, who are doing the very thing that God had called them to do. So it also makes me question even the prosperity of like the metrics we use of what success is, right? John's finale <laughs> is imprisonment and death. Jesus' finale, spoiler alert, Jesus' finale is imprisonment and death. They're both essentially alone and abandoned by others. Mission accomplished. And we wouldn't put that definition on any of it in most of our settings. This is what God called them to be. They were faithful for what the Father had for them. So any understanding of because I'm God's person that everything in life has to be flourishing, all my successes have to look like this, I think scripture challenges us in those paradigms. And then the kingdom versus sort of emotional detachment or anything along those lines. Like I really appreciate the very human moments in Jesus. And he hears about the death of his cousin who probably was one of his main teachers growing up to. And he doesn't give the disciples a bunch of platitudes. He doesn't look at them and say, John is in a better place. John's with my father, everything's good. And that may be true, but in his suffering, in his grief, Jesus retreats. It's as if Jesus recognizes the world's not as it should be in this moment. And every time there's a death, it seems to be common for him, right? He has us here. We will find out later. He has the death of his friend Lazarus. And Jesus in that story, the most famous two-word verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. He weeps in this moment. When encountering his own death, he goes to the garden and has just this anguish moment. We find Jesus in grief about suffering and death, all the consequences of sin in the world. 
Elizabeth Ellie would go on to say, if we learn to know God in the midst of our pain, we come to know him as one who is not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He is one who has been over every stretch of the road. I love that old hymn by Richard Baxter, Christ leads me through no darker rooms than he went through before. I love those words. And I think that's the invitation here too, to watch Jesus in his humanity go and grieve. We have a God that's not telling us, hey, grieving's wrong, suffering's not real, it'll all work out in the end. But we have one who came and entered into it. One who understands the betrayal of a friend. One who understands the death of a loved one. One who understands the physical pain of the body. One who understands the loss of a parent. One who understands the suffering under unjust systems or power plays by those in power. One who understands rejection by even those family and friends that he knew for so long. He understands it. And he lived it. And when he died, when he went to that grave, he did not magically take all the pain away. It did not set the world as it should be, at least not yet. But he invites us, I think, also still into reframing it. There was forgiveness of sin that happened on the cross. There's a renewal of the world that started to be introduced in that moment. And when he got out of that grave, he assured us of what will be one day. As Johnny Erickson Tata says, that the best we can hope for in this life is a knothole peek into the shining realities ahead. Yet a glimpse is enough. It's enough to convince our hearts that whatever sufferings and sorrows currently assail us aren't worthy of comparison to that which waits over the horizon. And it's not to say don't grieve, but we grieve with a little bit of a perspective. We grieve over the loss of loved ones, over health challenges, over physical loss, just as Jesus did. It's Christ-like to grieve death and the things that lead to death. But we do so with a glint of shining light about a resurrection, knowing that that death, that physical loss is not the final word. We grieve over broken relationships or betrayal or abandonment. Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest He was abandoned by most of his friends, even on the cross. He knows. And in grieving, perhaps in that place, there's healing and possibly redemption. We grieve over unfulfilled dreams or longings that we have. Good things that God just hasn't brought into our life for various reasons. And grief is the right response. I think it helps us take sadness or anger or disappointment or whatever it is and place it in the hands of a God who has the ability to bring new life and purpose out of a seemingly shattered dream. We grief over injustice. It's right to lament unjust things that are happening in the world, unjust systems, unjust powers, whatever it is. And grieving can even help motivate us to be agents of change about those things. Inspired by the hope that one day things will be made right. right? Like tomorrow, we're celebrating Martin Luther King. And, and one of his most famous quotes is around how the arc of history is towards justice. And we can sit there and be like, we care about injustice because God cares. And God has a direction for this world. And we grieve over our own failures and sins. We grieve our own shortcomings. And in that can lead us to repentance and being renewed by God in it. 
find the grace in the gospel. And we know no matter what comes of it, that grieving is temporary. It's not the finale. It's not the eternal. It's not the closing statement on our lives. The closing statement on John the Baptist is not, and he's in the ground and that's it. Closing statement on Jesus on Good Friday is not, he's in the ground and that's it. That there can always be life brought back out. But God does not invite us to just rush through the sadness and the pain. Just as our Savior did, that we would sit and grieve and be in that, knowing I expected the kingdom of God to be this. I'm experiencing this. And that gap is where our grief sits. So the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, reframes everything. It challenges our worldviews and understanding of how we see the world. It speaks of redemption, but through a cross, not a victory on the battlefield. The centerpiece at the end of the story in the book of Revelation is a throne. And sitting on that throne is not necessarily the, the military victor. It's a slain lamb. That's the centerpiece. Whether it's a cross or a slain lamb on the throne, those are the pictures we're given of victory. Very different. And then the face of the world, the kingdom seems like foolishness. And we get to journey as citizens and ambassadors of the kingdom in this world. And suffering will likely be a constant companion. But you know who else is a constant companion? The suffering servant who knows full well what we've been through and walks every step of the way with us. So we pray for us. We're going to enter into communion, a chance to respond and reflect and musical worship. Um, but let me pray. God, uh, I'm thankful for this word, for the way the word speaks so much to reality that that grief and suffering are not glossed over. If anything, they're kind of put in the middle. Because at some level, God, you seem to know that what we walk through, what we experience as humans involves so much suffering. And you didn't remain distant from it, but you moved into the middle of it. (laughs) And from birth to death, you experienced what so many of us experience. But you did so in a way that was sinless. You did so in a way that you went to the grave and conquered it. And now invite us to live into this new kingdom where we might suffer and grieve, but with a new perspective. And with a good father who knows us with a Savior who has walked through it, a high priest that understands our struggles. So God, help us. Help us to see all of this. God, we love you. Amen.